Chapter 16 She had the same uneasy mixture of feelings as the week wore on. Every morning she lay in bed, giddy again with sheer relief at the thought of the hours of liberty ahead of her. But every morning she made herself rise and dress and go down the hill to the newsstand, convinced that if she once let a day go by without thinking of Spencer Ward, without giving him her anxious attention, he would be lost. It was as if he were caught in a piece of machinery, and only she could see it. As if all that was keeping him from the grinding cogs was her hand hauling at his collar. But every morning he seemed to have been tugged away from her by another half-inch. Do worse to him next time, appeared as a headline in two or three of the papers, the day after the police court hearing, along with smiles and dock and owed a wallop. There were pictures of the boy being led to the prison van, one of him grinning full at the camera with his deplorable teeth, another of him attempting to shield his face in a spread-fingered style he could only, Francis thought, have got from American crook dramas he had seen at the cinema. On the Sunday, there were dismal quotes from some of his Bermondsey neighbors. He'd been in, in and out of trouble since he was a lad, and during the war he had run quite wild. He had stolen a motor car and overturned it on Streatham Common. He'd been involved in a ration book racket. He'd gone on numerous pilfering sprees. His uncle, a railway porter, gave an interview to the News of the World, asking for understanding. There is no real harm in Spencer, he said. He is a victim of circumstances. He was a sweet-tempered child, but has been a different character ever since the death of his father at Neuve-Chapelle. A year ago, we were in hopes that he was settling down, but then he met Miss Billy Gray and lost his head to her completely. She led him to believe that the two of them were engaged, and as far as I know, she accepted his ring. But once she got to know Mr. Leonard Barbary, it was a different story. He finished by saying, I cannot believe that my nephew was capable of this despicable crime, and I cannot help but ask myself why Miss Gray is so keen to pin the blame for the murder upon him. I have stated my concerns in a letter to Scotland Yard, and am awaiting their reply. That sent Frances' anxiety hurtling in a brand new direction. She recalled what Douglas had said about the girl and her sister having had some part in Leonard's death. If they were to be blamed now, too. When photographs of Billy began to appear in the press, she found herself poring over them in just the same tense way that, a week before, she had poured over those pictures of Lillian. They showed an ordinary face, made cheaply pretty by bottle-blonded bottle hair, by a darkened mouth and lashes, by eyebrows plucked into two thin arcs. The Bermondsey femme fatale was how the express snidely described her. In a similar vein, there were frequent mentions in all the papers of her Tulse Hill trysts with Leonard, as if the South London settings somehow made the whole thing worse. But, oh, thought Frances, how squalid it was. What on earth had Leonard been thinking? Looking into the girl's face, she recalled that moment in the Starlit Garden. And again, she felt an odd sting of betrayal at the thought that he had had such a secret, at the knowledge that he had been, at heart, a greater liar than she. I'll put them away, her mother pleaded, when she found her at the kitchen table with the newspapers spread out before her. I can't think why you persist in reading them. What good is all this brooding? Give yourself a rest from it, can't you? How on earth can I rest? Frances answered, and she knew she was speaking all the more indignantly, because resting was secretly what she longed and longed to do. How can I rest? Well, that boy's in prison with all this hang over his head. But surely it's out of our hands now. Do you plan to follow the case all the way to the old Bailey? She began to fold up the newspapers and spoke stubbornly. It won't go as far as that. What do you mean? 
Why do you say that? We must hope that it does, mustn't we, for the sake of Mr. Barber's family. It can't go anywhere on no evidence. Oh, Francis, how contrary you are. The boy's to be pitied, of course, but... Her mother's tone grew delicate. Well, from everything I've seen and read, he sounds a thoroughly nasty type. He's a thug, said Francis bluntly. But who turned him into one? The rest of us did. The war, poverty, the papers themselves, the pictures. He comes from a world where killing a man is something to boast about. Can you blame him? A few years ago, they were doling out medals for the same thing. And in any case, he could be the biggest thug in London. That doesn't mean he killed Leonard. But if he didn't do it, said her mother in perplexity, then who did? And that, of course, was the one question that Frances could not answer, or rather, the one question that she could answer and, in answering, utterly resolve. That terror stirred in her again. She put the papers out of sight. If only she could talk it through with Lillian. If only Lillian would come home. As the days passed and there was no word from her, she began to want to see her in the old, pure, craving way. At last she gave in and trudged back to Walworth, but she regretted it almost at once. Her visit had coincided with some break in Mr. Viney's working day. He was in the kitchen in his shirt sleeves, eating fried bread and bacon. The little girl had just arrived home from school and was full of the hardness of the playground. Why do you keep coming here? She asked Frances loudly, and Frances could tell from the violence with which she was scolded that the others were wondering the same thing. She was wondering it herself. The craving for Lillian seemed to have disappeared at the first sight, first sight of her. She took Frances through to the parlor. The door was closed. They were left alone. But it was just as it had been at the police court. Now that they had made their decision, there seemed nothing more to say. The little over-furnished room was drab and oppressive. Lillian was again dressed in some gown of veras with her hair put up in combs. You've been following the papers, Frances asked her. She shook her head. I can't bear to do it. Francis drew back from her. You'd rather do nothing. You'd rather do that. She spoke with scorn, again because she longed so hard to do nothing herself. And Lillian looked at her for a moment in a way she never had before, a level, wounded, let-down way. Ashamed, Francis put out her hand. Lily. Then the door burst open and the little girl ran in, bringing in the hysterical Jack Russell. The next day... The Daily Mirror reported that when Spencer Ward was 16, he had been one of a gang of youths who had assaulted another boy by tying him up and setting fire to his trousers. The Times ran an article on juvenile delinquents. The Express lamented the great tide of youthful lawlessness that had swept the country since the war. The case was still in its earliest stages. The boy hadn't even been given a chance, yet, to speak in his own defense. But everything Frances read, every neighbor she spoke to, seemed to take it for granted that he had murdered Leonard. She could see the guilty verdict being steadily built up against him. It was like a word game, gallows, that she had used to play with her brothers, where each false guess resulted in another stroke of the chalk on the slate, and before one's eyes there appeared the beams of the scaffold, the round head, the body, the stick-like limbs. She couldn't believe it. She wouldn't believe it. She kept telling herself, the plain fact is, he isn't a murderer. He's done nothing. It was like arithmetic, she thought. A sum could only come out one way. He couldn't be found guilty of a crime he hadn't committed. And she fixed all her hopes on the second police court hearing. But when the hearing took place, it was worse than the first one. 
Spencer was paler, less cocky, but no more likable this time than he had been the week before. And though he had got himself a counsel, a Mr. Strickland, a Bermondsey solicitor who Francis gathered had taken on the case under some sort of legal assistance scheme, the man did not inspire confidence. He had wispy hair and lopsided spectacles and nicotine stains on his fingers. He looked, she thought, like a harassed Latin master from a third-rate school. The prosecuting counsel was altogether more impressive. He went smoothly over the facts as put together by Inspector Kemp, then summoned a series of witnesses to the stand. The first was one of the boys who claimed to have heard Spencer making threats against Leonard's life. He kept looking at Spencer as he spoke, in a sly, gloating way. It was so patent that he had come to settle some sort of score that Francis's spirits rose slightly. No one could possibly consider him a credible witness, she thought. But after him came the Camberwell servant who had been in the lane with her sweetheart on the night of Leonard's death. And as she began to answer the prosecutor's questions, Francis's confidence shriveled. Now that the girl was in front of her, real, solid, fattish face, it was more horrible than ever to think that she had been there in that stretch of impenetrable darkness with Lillian and herself, breathing the same flannelly air. The prosecutor wanted to know what precisely she had heard. She repeated what she stated to the papers. There had been footsteps and sighs, along with a cry of no or don't. That could only, thought Frances, unnerved, have been the cry that she herself had given when Lillian had touched her arm. Could the girl describe the voice? It had been high, she said. So high that just at, fir at first she mistook it for a woman's. Frances began to sweat. Then I saw about the murder and... You decided, on reflection, that the voice was a man's, perhaps made high or light by fear. Oh, yes, it was awful fearful. I should hate to have to hear it again. Oh, it made your blood run cold. It was obvious that she believed every word she was saying, and the simplicity and sincerity of her manner impressed the room. Leonard's father was hunched up with his hand across his eyes. Douglas was patting his shoulder, and Francis could see that their distress was impressing people, too. Then the prosecutor called on the police surgeon, Mr. Palmer, to report on the findings of the home office laboratory. He spoke first about those hairs that had been taken from Leonard's coat. They were a fair match with the head of the accused, he said, but no more than fair. He wouldn't care to stake his reputation on them. The traces of blood that had been found on the cosh, however, were almost certainly human. The laboratory couldn't be more precise than that, but he had seen the slides himself, and in his opinion as well as theirs, yes, almost certainly. The shape of the weapon was also a reasonable fit with the shape of the wound on Mr. Barber's head. Could he say with what degree of violence the blow to the head had been delivered? Oh, a great degree of violence. It wasn't a casual blow. A glancing, a glancing blow. It couldn't have been delivered accidentally. It couldn't have been made in self-defense. Mr. Palmer almost smiled. Oh, no, I shouldn't think that likely, given that the wound was slightly to the rear of Mr. Barber's head. As for the intention, if I might have the instrument for a moment, please. A constable took it to him, and he held it up as Inspector Kemp had held it up at the first hearing. A short weapon like this, you see he went on, pushing his cuff back from his wrist, can have no momentum of its own. The momentum comes off from the arm. He swung his arm, he swung his own arm two or three times to demonstrate the action. 
with a longer object, a mallet, a poker, something like that, then yes, I would certainly suggest that the force of the blow might be greater than the assailant had anticipated. An inexperienced assailant, that is. But with this sort of thing, no. The person who made that inquiry, injury to Mr. Barber's head with this particular weapon would have known precisely what he was doing. He would have intended his blow to be fatal. He must have expected that result. Frances couldn't believe what she was hearing. The thing had taken on a life of its own. The surgeon, the lawyers, the police, they were all working backwards from their own idea of what had happened to Leonard and tailoring everything else to fit. There was no logic to it. Why couldn't anyone else see? If she and Lillian were to stand up now and say what had really happened, the trial would fall to bits. If they could only bring themselves to do it, wouldn't it be easier than sitting here, listening to the facts being mangled? If they could only tell the truth, calmly, if they could just lead Inspector Kemp back to Champion Hill, if they could just show him the ashtray, he might be brought to believe now that it was all an accident. The surgeon had as good as said so, hadn't he? But even as she raised her hands to the back of the pew in front of her, all the power in her muscles seemed to begin to drain away. She had to lean forward for a moment, close her eyes, fight off her own fear. And in that moment, the trial moved on, and she did nothing. Mr. Strickland requested more time in which to pursue his client's defense. With every respect to Mr. Palmer, he wished to consult another surgeon. He hoped that the medical evidence might be put at his disposal. The magistrate ordered that the hearing be adjourned. Spencer Ward was to be returned to Brixton for another seven days. And that was how it went on, exactly like that. Not just for one week, but for two, with incredibly no advance, no resolution. With Frances every time preparing herself for the worst, then receiving that sickening reprieve, with the boy being dispatched back to prison, until she began to feel as though they'd all slipped into some nightmarish other life, some hell or purgatory from which they would never get free. The complications of it all were beyond unpicking. Leonard's father, for example, He seemed to be aging before her eyes. Could she and Lillian really allow him to sit through another hearing, keep seeing that cost displayed, and imagine his son being pursued and beaten and left to die in a lane? Spencer's mother was the same. She looked more faded by the week. But then Frances' own mother was looking older, too. What would a confession do to her? What would she think of the fact that Frances and Lillian had waited so long to make it? They ought to have spoken out at once. Frances saw that now. It was a too dark pass all over again, just like last time. She had chosen the wrong one. It was too late to turn back. September gave way to October. The fourth hearing came and went. Already the boy had been in prison nearly a month. It was terrible. It was horrible. But at what precise moment should she and Lillian present themselves to the police? At what point did his safety start to outweigh theirs? Well, there was still a chance that the case would come to nothing, they had to keep on with it, didn't they? Yes, said Lillian. They had to keep on with it. But suppose it goes to the old Bailey, said Francis. He'll be on trial for his life then. His life. Lillian paled. But you said it wouldn't. I thought it wouldn't. Now I don't know. You were sure it wouldn't. You said, well, how could I possibly have been sure? It was you that wanted to wait. They began to go on like this when they met arguing whispers in the Viney's parlor or Vera's bedroom or down the badly lighted passage behind the Walworth Road door, or else they sat in a dead silence, struggling and failing to break it. Their plans for the future, 
the art classes, the bread and scrape. Where had it gone? Frances thought of that room they'd used to dream about. She'd seen herself closing a door of it, turning a key against the world. They were in a room now, certainly, the room of their poisonous secret. It might be a prison cell already. Sometimes she raged. Sometimes she could have wept. Sometimes they clung together before they parted, and it was almost all right. But, do you love me? Lillian asked once, with a note of yearning in her voice, and the question was as jarring as if it had been asked by Vera or Min. Frances drew her close and kissed her, but she did it mainly to hide her own face. She went home that day so dejected, she wondered if their passion had ever been real. The house, when she went into it, clamored drably for her attention. Rent days had come and gone. She and her mother were slipping back towards debt. She made herself go into Lillian's sitting room. The stains on the carpet seemed vivid again. But the stains didn't matter now, of course, she had to remind herself. Even the ashtray didn't matter. Her eyes went instead to the birdcage, the tambourine. She could see nothing but a lot of old junk. The china caravan was still on the mantelpiece. She picked it up and was amazed by how light it was. Turning it over, she she saw that it was hollow with a hole in the bottom. Somehow she hadn't realized that. She held it in her hand and remembered Lillian dipping her mouth to it, and for a second desire stirred in her, like a flame brought to life by a breath on a cinder. Then she thought of Leonard in his coffin, Spencer in his prison cell, and felt a rush of shame and embarrassment so acute she was almost sick. That night she dreamt she was pushing Leonard's body through crowded streets in a thing like Violet's doll's pram, with only a little doll's blanket to cover it. She kept pulling the blanket over his head, only to put his sprawled legs on display, kept twitching the blanket down again, exposing exposing his bloated, purplish face. She awoke in a sweat in the dark early morning, but what remained with her was not the horror of Leonard's body in the pram, so much as the loneliness of the dream, for she had been utterly on her own in it, the burden of the crime entirely hers. Where was Lillian? Lillian had left her. She felt like a child, abandoned. She had given her heart to Lillian, and Lillian had given her nothing in return save half-truths, evasions, prevarications, lies. Then, from nowhere, there came a whisper. Five hundred pounds. The fact was, the swing of the ashtray had made Lillian a wealthy woman. The fact was, Lillian had done rather nicely out of the whole affair. She had rid herself of an unwanted child. She had rid herself of an unwanted husband. She had pinned the blame on an innocent boy. And I helped her with every stage of it, thought Frances in a panic. I even carted Leonard's body down the stairs for her. She lay there in the darkness, turning it over in her mind. She could recollect recollect times. She was sure she could, when Lillian had wished Leonard dead. Oh, why can't some nice fat bus just run him over? Oh, if only he would just die. She forgot that there were times when she had wished him dead herself. Then, with a dreadful jolt, She thought of the letter that Lillian had once written her. Didn't that letter have something in it? Some desire? Some plea? She lit a candle, got out of bed, went shivering across to her chest of drawers to fish out the box in which, sentimentally, she kept the tokens of their love affair. There they all were, the silk forget-me-nots, the slips of paper with the kisses in the hearts. They looked childish, grotesque. Right at the bottom was the letter. She took it out of its envelope. What a scrap it was, after all, mawkish and badly written. She found the lines she had remembered. 
If it isn't, then tell me and make me believe it because I feel right now that I am ready to do any desperate thing to be with you. Her heart leapt into her throat. I am ready to do any desperate thing. Lillian had written those words after finding those tickets in Leonard's pocket and the knowledge that she had started a baby by him. Has she written them in spite? Has she written them in calculation? Has she planned the whole thing, even then? But then Frances asked herself, how do I know for sure that the baby was leaving even Leonard's? Leonard had doubted it, hadn't he? Maybe he'd been right. Lillian was unfaithful to him. Why shouldn't she also have been unfaithful to me? She looked again at the letter, and this time a different line caught her eye. You said I like to be admired. You said I would love anybody who admired me. Now her mind ran over those admirers of Lillian's, the lady killer in the park, the men in the trains lowering their newspapers for a better look at her. She remembered the cousins she had danced with so freely at Netta's party. She remembered curly-haired Ewart. If she was my wife, I'd smack her behind. So even he had seen it. There must be something about Lillian, wasn't there? <clears throat> there must be something instinctual, something almost morbid, something like an unhealthy perfume that drew those men, those boys, drew Frances herself. <clears throat> in a sort of fever now, she took the letter in the box over to the hearth, tipped it all into the grate and put a match to it. She couldn't have things like that in the house. Suppose the police should find them. She watched the papers being eaten by the flame and for a moment grew calmer. Then her mind began racing again. What else was there to incriminate her? The China caravan next door? She thought seriously of fetching it and smashing it up. Then she remembered the half button that she had found in the kitchen passage that might or might not have been pulled from Leonard's cuff. She had pushed it into the earth of the, of the Aspidistra plant. That was a crazy thing to have done. She ought to have taken the button away from the house, right away, somewhere. She ought to have dropped it into the Thames. If the police should come. The police wouldn't come, so long as Spencer Ward was in prison. But she had got to a point almost of madness now. It seemed to her quite possible that Lillian might go to Inspector Kemp and tell him some sort of tale against her. She might have gone to him already. He might be on his way to the house. Didn't they come in the early morning? Wasn't that how they did it? It was ten to six and pitch dark. She was shivering right through, but she put on her dressing gown and slippers, picked up her candle, stole downstairs, and quietly, quietly, thinking of her mother, asleep nearby, she lifted the aspidistra from its spot beside the dinner gong and carried it out to the kitchen table. It was trickier than she'd expected to get hold of the button. She couldn't reach it with the blade of a knife. She had to tip the pot, scrub on the earth with her fingers. <clears throat> The dusty leaves got into her face, sharp and hard against her eyes. The earth began to spill, but she kept on digging, growing more and more anxious, feeling more and more desperate, until the pot fell noisily sideways and the plant came free, a mass of dirt and writhing white roots. The button came tumbling out, along with everything else. Just a black half-button it was, like a thousand others in the house. Probably not from Leonard at all. The sight of it broke the spell of her insanity. She covered her face and started to cry. When she looked up, looked up a few minutes later, her mother was there, gazing at her from the kitchen doorway. Frances, good heavens, what on earth's the matter? Frances shook her head. Nothing, she said, as she sobbed and sobbed into her dirty fingers. Nothing. She spent that day in bed. Her mother brought her tea and aspirin, along with ill-cooked little meals, rubbery buttered eggs, collapsed potatoes. 
After lunch, there was a tap at the bedroom door, and in came the family physician, an elderly man named Dr. Lawrence. Her mother must have sent one of the tradesman's boys to him with a note. He took her blood pressure and listened to her heart and felt beneath her jaw with his warm, dry fingers. Any giddiness, he asked her. Fainting spells? Shortness of breath? She shook her head at every question, embarrassed about her tattered nightgown, worried about how much his visit was costing. But his manner was so mild, so unsuspecting, that her eyes filled with tears. She patted her hand. He patted her hand and spoke quietly to her mother out on the landing. Nerve strain was his conclusion, perhaps a, de a delayed response to the war and to the deaths in the family, all aggravated by recent upsets. Francis must rest, avoid excitements. He left her a jar of tabloids to be taken at bedtime. She lay and thought of her father, <clears throat> of her father's heart attacks. She thought of the terrors that must have seized him over his failing fortune, his lost sons, his cross-grained, unmarriageable daughter, and she wept again. For two or three days after that, she gave herself over to the idea of an invalidism. <laughs> she didn't dare venture out for the morning papers. Spencer Ward, for once, had to go unthought about, unimagined. She couldn't help it if the machinery sucked him in and crushed him. She kept to the sofa with worn old books from her childhood, Treasure Island and the Swiss Family Robinson. She took her tabloid at nine o'clock each night and dropped straight into a dreamless sleep. And then on a Sunday morning, when she was least expecting it, when she had given up hoping for it and was no longer sure that she even wanted it to happen, Lillian returned. She had just cleared the breakfast table and was out in the scullery washing up. When she heard the sound of a key going into the lock of the front door, she thought it was her mother, come back early from church. Puzzled, she called down across the kitchen. Is everything all right? <clears throat> there was no answer, only the tap, oddly uncertain, of heels on the floor. Her heart made an unpleasant movement in her chest. Shaking the suds from her fingers, she went out into the passage, and there was Lillian in her widow's coat and hat with a suitcase in her hand, looking nothing at all like the sinister, scheming creature that madness had made of her, looking sheepish, like a visitor who had stayed out too long, looking thin, looking pale, but apart from that, looking achingly familiar and dear. Frances's step faltered. She was horribly conscious of her own appearance, her face still puffy from her drugged, unnatural sleep, her hair unwashed, her clothes at their drabbest. She blotted her hands on her apron. You ought to have let me know you were coming. I could have got myself ready for you. Lillian's face fell slightly. You don't have to get yourself ready for me, do you? Well, got the house ready, then. Oh, but no, it's all right. Frances had come forward to take the suitcase from her. She swung and raised it awkwardly. It struck Frances's elbow with a hollow sound, and Frances realized that it was empty. She looked at Lillian, not understanding. But Lillian was blushing now. I can't keep borrowing Vera's things, she said. I've come to get some clothes to take back to Walworth. So she hadn't come back to stay. Frances felt a rush of the abandonment that had overwhelmed her a few nights before. The feeling was like a wailing infant suddenly thrust into her arms. She didn't want it, couldn't calm it, had nowhere to set it down. Without a word, she turned away, went out to the kitchen to remove her apron and wash her hands. She took her time over it, doing all she could to press her mood into some more manageable shape. She supposed that Lillian would go upstairs without her, but when she returned to the hall, Lillian was still standing there, gazing upward but hesitating about starting the climb. 
I just need to get my courage up, she said. I've been dreading coming back. Will you go up ahead of me? Again, Francis said nothing, but climbed the stairs at an ordinary pace, then stood in silence on the landing while Lillian cautiously followed. They went into the sitting room first. Lillian set down the case, but made no move to take off her hat and coat. Instead, she stood looking around like a wondering stranger. It feels so long since I was here. It's only a month, but everything seems different. Everything looks wrong. All these things, so many things, and everything with dust on it already. She had gone to the cold fireplace and was gazing at the clutter on the mantelpiece. The elephants, the tambourine, the caravan, all of it dulled, the bright surfaces clouded as if by gusts of sour breath. Then she noticed a substantial pile of letters that had accumulated in her presence, in her absence. She picked them up, and Francis said awkwardly, I don't know what to do with them, whether to take them to you at your mother's, or I didn't know when you'd be coming back. Lillian was going through the bundle with a look of dismay. Most of them are for lead. Yes. I never thought of ordinary things like Post still coming for him. But these others, I've had letters like these at Walworth. They're from people who've read about me in the papers. They say all sorts of things, unkind things sometimes. I don't open them anymore. Leave them then, said Francis. I'll burn them. She had been speaking flatly all this time, but Lillian didn't appear to notice. She put the letters down, then stood like a stranger again. She seemed not to know what to do with herself. Frances offered to make her tea, but no, she didn't want that. Finally, she closed her eyes tight and gave a shake of her head. Oh, I knew if I came back, I'd start to feel like this. While I'm at my mother's, it doesn't seem real. About Len, I mean. But here, I'm still wondering where he is. She looked at Frances. Aren't you? I'm still expecting him to walk through the door. Then I have to remember that even if he did come, well, he'd have to come from her, wouldn't he? He'd been with her that night, the night it all happened. And do you remember, when he thought I was seeing another man, he, he left, just for a second before he got angry, as if it was funny. I couldn't think why he laughed like that. I know now. Are you here, said Francis, simply to growls about your husband? What with one thing and another? I'm not sure I'm quite in the mood for it today. She didn't know where the comment had come from. It seemed to have said it itself. She couldn't remember ever before having used the word grouse like that. It was much more the sort of thing that Leonard would have said. Startled, she and Lillian looked at each other. But the moment for apology came, then went. Lillian put down her head, stepped past Frances for her suitcase, and carried it out of the sitting room and into the room next door. It was the first time that they had been properly alone together, and they were wasting it, Frances thought in despair. It was all grating, discordant. She followed Lillian as far as the landing, looked in at her through the bedroom doorway. She had put the suitcase on the bed and removed her hat and coat at last, but removed them only so that she could go more freely to the wardrobe and the chest of drawers and pull out the things she needed. Frances thought back to that day in the summer when she had watched her packing the same suitcase for her trip to Hastings. They had gone rinking that day. Rinking? It seemed too quaint and wholesome to be true. She remembered the speed, the laughter, the holding of hands. Afterwards, they had gone to the park. It's the only real thing, Lillian had said. She was working quickly now, seeming to take clothes at random, and the small case was already almost full. Frances watched her fit in another nightdress, another pair of shoes. 
You surely don't mean to carry all that to Walworth, she said, as Lillian drew over the case's lid and tried to press it shut. Lillian answered tightly without looking up. I'll take a tram. I'm all right now. I'm not ill like I was before. And you really have to take quite so much. It's easier to just take everything. We don't know what's going to happen, do we? I don't know what I'll need. Frances didn't answer that. But after a moment of watching the struggle with the suitcase, she moved forward to help, leaning her weight on the springy lid so that the latches could be clicked home. Lillian drew the case from the bed and caught out by the weight of it, set it down with a thump. But I can manage, she insisted, still without meeting Frances's eyes, as Frances automatically reached to take it. I told you I'm all right now, she added after a second in a different, more hesitant tone. I have something for you, though. She picked up her handbag and drew out an envelope. She put it into Francis's hand, and Francis heard the chink of coins. What's this? She answered self-consciously. It's my rent. Did you think I had forgotten? There's nearly 12 pounds there, enough for two months. Is that all right? And once again, the moment had another moment inside it. That time back in April, when they were still strangers to each other, and Lillian had shyly held out her first paper packet of rent. It was as though their life, thought Francis, were being mercilessly spooled back to onto a reel, or as if, one by one, the stitches that had fastened them together were being unpicked. The thought upset her. She tried to give the envelope back. I can't take this, Lillian. You can't pay rent for rooms you aren't living in. Please take it. It's yours. Yours and your mother's. I'd far rather you kept it. Don't you need the money? Well, yes, but so do you, don't you? Lillian looked more self-conscious than ever. She said, I saw a solicitor yesterday. He wrote to me about Len's money, the money from his insurance, I mean. He gave me a check. Oh, please don't do that. Lillian had gone close to her to stuff the envelope back into her bag. She got it out again and attempted to return it to Frances's hand. Frances made fists, lifted her arms. I don't want it. They dodged and scuffled, absurdly. Just take it, Frances. I don't want it. Please. No, I hate that money. Well, I hate it too, said Lillian. She had flung the envelope to the bed. Her face was patched with color. How do you think it makes me feel? Have you thought about that? You know when Len took the policy out? It was right after that night in July, that night when the boy hit him. He must have thought it all through. He must have thought that boy really meant it, that he might go after him again. He must have really thought he might die. But even then, even thinking that, well, that didn't keep him from seeing her, did it? He thought enough of me to get me that 500 pounds, but he thought more of her. God, said Francis, unable to bear it. Why do you care? I don't know, but I do. I do. You used to say that you didn't even love him. You were planning to live, leave him, weren't you? Yes, but weren't you? Yes, don't bully me, Francis. You always bully me. I can't explain it. I hate him for wanting her. I know he was only doing with her what I was doing with you, but I hate him for it. And I hate her, too. I never wanted his money. You say you don't want it either, but... With a bruised, stubborn expression, she retrieved the envelope and set it on the chest of drawers. I'll leave it here, and you can take it or forget about about it as you like. And then she picked up her coat. Watching her slide an arm into its sleeve, Francis said... You're going right now, then, are you? She loathed the sound of her own voice. We haven't even talked about the case. Lillian let the coat fall slightly. There's nothing to say, is there? 
We're just going to wait, we said. You haven't changed your mind. No, I haven't changed my mind. You wouldn't change it and not tell me. Well, of course I wouldn't. Well, don't say it like that. I don't know what's in your head anymore. You feel so far away from me. All the way between here and Walworth. Oh, now you're not being fair. You know why it is I'm staying there. It makes the other things easier. We've still got men from the newspapers coming. Some of them wait outside with cameras. We've still got policemen coming, too. Even rather they all came here. Frances was silent for a moment. Then, no, she admitted. No, I wouldn't rather that. Lillian's tone softened. Being apart for a while, it's just something we have to bear. It's hard now. Everything's hard. But it'll seem small afterwards, won't it? If everything comes right. Frances was silent again, but nodded. In a deliberate sort of way, Lillian put down the coat and came to her, and they embraced. But there was no match between them, Frances thought. There was no fit, no comfort. She stood rigid, hating it, and began to move out of Lillian's arms. But as she edged away, Lillian caught hold of her. Frances. Her heart had quickened its pace. Frances could feel the thud of it. She bowed her head to Frances's shoulder, and when she spoke, the raise of her heart was in her voice. Frances, tell me it'll be all right between us when all this is finished. Tell me it'll be how it used to be. I know you hate me for what I did, and I know you think I'm weak. I'm trying hard not to be weak anymore. But let me be weak for just one minute now. Tell me nothing will have changed, that I haven't ruined it. I get so frightened. I don't mean about just about the boy. That's bad enough. But I think I could bear it better if I knew, if I thought. It was all so clear, everything we planned to do. It was all so wonderful. Now it's like there's this curtain across it. I don't know what's going to be there when the curtain's pulled back. I don't know what you're thinking. She drew back her head on the last words and looked into Frances's eyes. Their faces were inches apart. Frances caught the scent of her lipstick and powder, felt the heat and stir of her lips. It was impossible not to kiss her, as not to blink, not to breathe. But when their mouths came together, they did so dryly and uneasily, like the meeting mouths of strangers, so that it seemed to Frances for a moment that the kiss would be worse than no kiss at all, it would be like an unkiss, an undoing. But then she felt the shy, tentative pressure of Lillian's tongue against hers, just the tip of a tongue, warm and familiar against hers. She met it with a pressure of her own, put up a hand to Lillian's face, and all at once the kiss had changed, was wet, open, intimate. The sudden flooding relief of it made them both grow weak. They broke the kiss to clutch at each other, to pull each other closer. Oh, I love you, I love you, said Lillian, her words coming in a hot rush against Frances's ear, on the breath that was being squeezed out of her. They kissed again, more hectically than before. Where their breasts and hips met, it was like the pushing of something through skin, a bursting back into life, almost painful. But there were too many bulky layers of fabric between them. Still kissing, they began to fret and tug at each other's clothing. Frances worked her hands under Lillian's blouse, got hold of the waistband of her skirt. She fumbled for a moment with hooks and a button, then gave up and reached lower, catching at the skirt itself, hauling it high, handful by handful, plucking at it and bunching it, until her fingers met the silk beneath, then found the flesh beneath that. They were still on their feet, swaying and ungainly. She put out a foot to kick close the door, and they almost stumbled. Lillian's arms were around her, her hands chill on a strip of bare skin. 
Only when she had brought her own hand around Lillian's thigh and her fingers were slipping and rubbing between Lillian's legs did Lillian pull away from her slightly to catch her breath, to dip her head, and to reach blindly behind her, wanting the wall or the bedstead, something to get hold of her to give her get something to get hold of to give her balance. Finding nothing, she gradually surrendered herself to this instability of the pose, letting her arms fall, letting Frances brace and support her. She lifted her head, that was all. As Frances's hand moved faster, as the muscles of her face began to tense, she lifted her head and held Frances's gaze, as if wanting Frances to see, as if determined for her to see, that there was nothing in the way of the two of them, nothing between them but skin. But then, what happened? Something happened, something like the change that had come before, but a wrong thing, this time a dimming, a draining away. Lillian closed her eyes after all. She held her breath, the lines of her face pulled tighter. The color mounted in her cheeks, but the tension led nowhere, and with the loss of urgency, their pose began to feel awkward, odd. Frances's arms and legs were aching now, the strain building like a burn in her muscles. She altered her stance, shifted her weight, trying to keep up the rhythm of her hand. Now Lillian's face was clenched. Dismayed, Frances could see that she was having to will the thing to its crisis. Her own fingers felt blind, suddenly. She quickened the slide of them, and... What shall I do? she asked. Lillian, how shall I do it? But the question, the admission, only made her more self-conscious. The ease and familiarity were gone. She became aware that she was chafing at cooling, sticky, unenchanted flesh. Abashed, she let her hands slow. And after another few seconds of it, Lillian reached to still her fingers. They stood like that with bowed heads, drooping shoulders, while their breathing steadied and the race of their hearts subsided. Even then, it might have been all right. Come and lie down with me, Lillian said softly. She led Francis to the bed. They lay with their heads on a single pillow, drew their counterpane over each other so that they shouldn't get cold, just as they'd done when they were lovers. The pillow smelled faintly of Leonard's hair oil, on the dusty bedside cabinet were, the, were his box of links and studs, his handkerchief, his public library thriller racking up a fine. On the back of the bedroom door, his dressing gown still clung to Lillian's kimono. <clears throat> but if one closed one's eyes, thought Francis, if one forgot the fumble and failure of a few minutes before, if one forgot the blood, the electric panic, the police, the newspapers, if one made one's bl- mind blank, then couldn't be now. Couldn't it be how it used to be, the two of them together, warm and true? It's the only real thing. Couldn't they let it be real again, just for a moment? But then that boy trapped in the machine. Already her mind was lurching back in a horrible life. She turned her head. She opened her eyes. And what she saw over on the chest of drawers was the envelope with 12 pounds on it. in it. Don't look at it, she told herself. Don't think it. Say nothing, for God's sake but she couldn't help it. That madness was rising in her again. She let out a horrid little sneering laugh, and in a voice that didn't even sound like her own, she said, I'm afraid you didn't quite get your money's worth today. Lillian lifted her head from the pillow, her face creasing into a frown. Money's worth? Or have I misunderstood? Is a payment for something else entirely? Don't worry, I won't go to the police, if that's what's troubling you. The boy will stay nicely tucked up at Brixton. Lillian held herself quite still for a moment. 
Then she jerked away, threw off the counterpane, and got down from the bed. She turned her back to Frances as she straightened her skirt and blouse. Her hair was untidy, but she didn't pause to comb it. In a series of rigid, furious movements, she found her hat, stepped into her shoes, pulled on her coat, stuffed her gloves into her handbag. Only when the strap of the bag was looped over her arm and she had leaned to pick up the suitcase did she turn back to Frances, who, all this time, had been watching from the bed. And what she said, coldly and lovely, was... I'm sorry you aren't as brave as you thought you were, Francis. Francis stared at her. What? But don't punish me because of it. And make out you're doing it because of that boy. If I want punishing, I'll go to Inspector Kemp and get it for something I deserve. She covered her eyes and spoke less steadily. Now you've made me be sharp with you. When all I came for, all I came for was... She dropped her hand. I gave things up for you, Francis. I gave my baby up for you. I never asked for what we had. If I'd asked for something like that, don't you think I'd have asked for it to be easier? Instead, no, get off me. Get away from me. Frances had jumped down from the bed and was reaching for her. She pushed her back. Let me alone. But Frances was panicking now. The madness had vanished as completely as if pricked by a pin and exploded. Lily, forgive me, please. I don't know what's the matter with me. Get off. I think I'm losing my mind. The other night... Please, Lily. Lillian was at the door. I got it open. Don't go. Don't leave me again. I don't know I said what I did. I didn't mean it. Let me alone. She has struck out properly this time. The blow caught Frances on the bone of the cheek and made her start back. She put a hand to the sting of it, and for a second, the two of them faced each other, horrified at what they were doing, horrified at what the moment recalled. But part of their terror, Frances knew, was that their own helplessness, their own inability to do anything to the tangle they were in, but make it pull tighter. Don't go, she said again, but it was too late. It was all too late. Lillian had already turned, was fleeing. In a silent house, her heels were noisy as gunshots as she went down. The Tuesday of that week was the anniversary of John Arthur's death. Frances looked at his picture, dry-eyed. On the same day, the inquest was reopened at Camberwell, and the jury, instructed by the coroner, brought back a verdict of willful murder. When, two days later, it was time to make her way to the next police court hearing, she had the energy for it. She stayed at home, curled up on the sofa with a copy of Kidnapped. The news came at lunchtime, brought down by Mrs. Playfair, who had had it from Patty, whose niece was engaged to that boy in the police. There was no surprise about it. The hearing had been over in a matter of minutes. The prosecutor had concluded his case, and the magistrate had declared himself satisfied. To applause, to applause from Leonard's family and cheers from the crowded public benches, Spencer Ward was committed to trial at the Old Bailey in just over a fortnight's time.